What's up, Betamaxers? Welcome to the latest episode of Celluloid Fever Dreams, where every week we dive into cinematic history to find the overlooked and underappreciated films from cinematic history and make a case for why you should check them out. As always, I'm your host, the irrefutable, the rootable, the footable, Wyndham Jennings. Before we get into this week's film, I want to give you a heads up and uh, give you a reminder at the end of the episode as well. But on the 17th of this month, there's going to be an event that is probably the biggest thing to ever happen in podcasting. Uh, it's going to be the equivalent of Infinity War and Endgame. It's just that big. It's almost unimaginable that something of this magnitude could happen and the, the whole podcasting uh, ecosystem, multiverse, whatever you want to call it, will be changed forever because of it. That's right. Uh, Esoterica Cinema is going to be releasing an episode talking about the Alan Moore written and starring film, The Show, and yours truly is a guest on it. I will now pause for three seconds to give you sufficient time to squee with delight. Okay, that's enough. Now, uh, Esoterica Cinema, since you're listening to this podcast, it's kind of similar. They like finding uh, sort of off-the-beaten-path movies and talk about them. Uh, their thing is they try to pair films up that may share a theme or uh, an idea, story beats, whatever, and, and uh, then discuss that you know, uh, on top of reviewing the film as well. But I had a lot of fun recording the show with uh, Jason and Ryan. They, you know, it was one of those things I was really nervous about. I've only ever, you know, guest, been a guest on one other podcast. But uh, between the two of them, it was, it was one of those moments where, uh, you know, when we, when we started talking, we just sort of connected. Uh, you know, it was uh, one of those rare situations where you meet somebody and you kind of feel like you've known them for a very long time, like your old friends, you know, we just all seem to immediately hit the same kind of wavelength. Uh, and, and I got to admit, it was really fun uh, having other people to talk to about the, you know, the, the film in question. So if you like this podcast and I'm guessing you do, uh, I mean, I mean, you're, you're listening to it and my smooth leathery voice, then uh, take a chance with Esoterica Cinema, Jason Peters and Ryan Seabold. You know, and find some more off-kilter kind of movies you can go out there and watch. And don't forget on the 17th, when they're doing an episode uh, on the show, Alan Moore's The Show, and I'm going to be a special guest on it. But enough about them. Over here on CFD, I did not like the way that sounded. It sounded better in my head. I'm never using that, that uh, abbreviation again. But uh, over here at Celluloid Fever Dreams... This week's movie is from 1991. It's Sylvester Stallone and Marissa Tomei in Oscar. Released by Touchstone Pictures, which for a while was where Disney released all their uh, non-kid or family-friendly films. And directed by John Landis. My uh, favorite tagline I come across for the movie is, In comedy and crime, timing is everything. As always, uh, we start off with the time-tested, world-famous, and patent-pending two-second synopsis. Slapstick stuff happens. For a longer summary, Sylvester Stallone plays 
Angelo Snaps Provolone, a Depression and Prohibition-era gangster who promises his dying father that he'll go straight and live an honest life, earning his money the legal way from that point on. We pick up a month later, and it's the big day. It's the day that Snaps goes straight, he uh, buys into a bank and becomes a member of the board, and becomes an honest man at last. But the road to honesty is not an easy one, and over the course of the day, Snaps keeps running into problems, such as an accountant who's been skimming money off of him, a daughter who's unmarried and pregnant, and and three identical suitcases that everyone seems to have trouble keeping track of. Yeah, this was uh, kind of playing against type for Stallone, who has built a career out of being an action star and, and uh, you know playing sort of a manly man in a lot of his films. Um, from what I can remember, the last attempt he really made at comedy before this film, if you don't count Tango and Cash, is uh, probably Rhinestone with Dolly Parton in the early 80s. And and even before that, you'd probably have to go back to um, one of his earliest films. Uh, what was the name of it? Like Kitty and Studs. And yeah, it, it it's every bit as bad as the title makes it out to be. So yeah, Oscar was kind of um, kind of a play against type. But in the '90s, we're starting to see more action stars leaning into comedic roles. Uh, you know, around this time, you also have Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, starting to get into some of his comedy roles, like in Twins or in um, Kindergarten Cop, for example. You know, so it's not unheard of, but it, uh, it you know it was something that everybody was kind of surprised that Stallone would take a stab at it. Now, Oscar is a remake. It originally started out as a stage play in 1958 by a French playwright, Claude Monnier. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's one of two plays he wrote that were adapted into film. In 1967, Oscar was adapted into a film in uh, Monnier's native France, and it starred Louis de Funès. Funès? De Funès? I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, who had played Oscar in the play over 600 times between 1959 and 1972. Now, I haven't seen the original play, and I haven't seen the 1967 film, but uh, from what I was able to come across in my research, in the original film, uh, according to several synopses that I come across, the uh, dad is just trying to find a suitable husband for his daughter. Uh, there is, he's not a gangster, he's a businessman, and uh, according to what Stallone had said, because apparently he watched the film in order to, to do research for the role, the character is very bitter and uh, very cynical. Oh, uh, and the French Oscar is set in contemporary times. So it's set in 1967. We talked earlier this year about director John Landis. He also directed the Blues Brothers. And through the late 70s and the 80s, he just had a ton of comedic hits uh, and, and horror hits. Some of the films he's directed include Animal House, The Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Three Amigos, Coming to America, and Kentucky Fried Movie. He also uh, directed several video projects for Michael Jackson, including the video for the, the song Thriller. And, of course, the Twilight Zone film, which he directed a segment of and produced, and had the horrible accident that uh, ended the lives of 
three actors, which uh, could be a podcast episode by itself. And it's not something I'm really going in depth with here. Just something I wanted to remind you of. There's several podcasts and uh, even an episode of the Shudder TV TV series, uh, Cursed Films, I believe, that goes into a lot of depth about it and and, uh, the culture and filmmaking around the time when this happened much better than I ever could. Uh, I will go ahead and say that the 90s weren't really a good time for Landis. Uh, he, He didn't really seem to be able to pull off some of the hits like he could in the 70s and 80s, you know, whether that was, you know, aftermath of what happened with the Twilight Zone or, you know, some other factors, you know, I, I'm not sure. But from this film on out, he never really, you know, dominated the box office or had a, a big hit like he did at the beginning of his career. In fact, uh, John Landis hasn't directed a film since 2010 when he directed uh, Burke and Hare starring Simon Pegg, Andy Serkis and uh, Isla Fisher. So he's produced some TV shows and, and done a couple of, I think, voiceover projects, but I genuinely believe his feature film directing uh, career is pretty much over at this point. The writers for Oscar are Michael Burry and Jim Mulholland. They have worked together since the Joan Rivers television show back in 1968. And they've worked on uh, Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Welcome Back, Cotter, uh, the Carol Burnett show, a lot of TV work in their IMDb profiles. In fact, their only other feature film that I could see on the IMDb page, it was also a little later in the 90s, it's Bad Boys, which which kind of struck me as a little weird. You know, they have so much comedy in their career and, and in their credits, and then Bad Boys. Uh, in fact, they were still tweaking the script while the sets and everything was being built for the film and had to give daily updates to John Landis, according to some of my sources. And talk about a set. The majority of the film takes place in the uh, Provolone Mansion. And it is a beautiful uh, 30s-era mansion. Two floors, a uh, yard tons of rooms all just elegantly decorated it's a beautiful house I, w- I would live in it it's just a gorgeous house and they rigged it up uh, the electricity it has uh, working electricity and plumbing and they tried to make it look as authentic as possible and some of the set pieces are actually from that period they're originals a lot of light fixtures are uh, from the 30s uh, some of the props that you see some of the decorations, the furniture, were even taken from the Bonanza House, which was a San Francisco uh, mansion that was built in the 1880s and abandoned shortly after the 1906 earthquake. And uh, numerous props from the film actually now reside in the Smithsonian because of their historical value. They were used in the movie and you know, then sent back to the museum. Weirdly enough, the film almost didn't get made. They had started filming in November of 1990 on the uh, back lot of Universal Studios. They were using the New York City street set to get some exterior shots of the film done when a fire ripped through the back lots on November 6th. It destroyed the entire exterior set, about, uh, according to some sources, about four acres of the studio was burned down, including the entire New York City street set. The uh, wardrobe trailer for the film 
and 21 rented antique automobiles all went up in the blaze. Uh, along with you know assorted camera equipment, microphones, you know other things needed to actually make the movie, uh, Landis got the crew together and they promised they could get up and running again in ten days, and set out working twenty four hours a day in order to try to replace everything they had lost. Uh, Landis has gone on to say in, in several interviews that he was actually inundated with offers of help from people not even connected to the film, just. Other uh, prop makers and, and uh, people in the industry wanting to step in and help them get back up and running in this self-imposed 10-day deadline. Exterior shooting was moved to Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida and finished on their uh, New York City street set, which was built there. In fact, Oscar holds a unique place in cinema history in that it was the last movie filmed on the original New York City street set at Universal Studios, California, and the first film filmed on the New York City New York City exterior street set in Orlando, Florida. Good Lord, that's a tongue twister. New York City exterior street set. Landis has also gone on record as saying that the tone of Oscar and the humor in it was directly inspired by a lot of slapstick comedies from the 30s and 40s. In fact, the uh, movie poster, which shows Sylvester Stallone hanging from a broken clock face, is lifted almost exactly from the 1923 Harold Lloyd film, Safety Last. And it's really apparent once you start watching the film. The dialogue is witty. It tends to flow fast. The, the film's got a really quick pace to it. Uh, in fact, the pacing and you know, some of the gags and the uh, way some of the characters react to the situations unfolding. The movie reminds me a little bit of, well, not just a little bit, it almost seems like a spiritual successor to Clue. And there's actually a couple of links uh, in the script and, and in the cast between Clue and Oscar. The most obvious one is, of course, Tim Curry appears in both films. In this one, he plays Dr. Poole who is Snap's elocution coach. In other words, he's the one trying to teach Sylvester Stallone not to sound like Sylvester Stallone, I guess. But the other one that I caught, and I actually had to rewind the movie to make sure I heard the joke correctly, is one of the henchmen of Snap's complaining about his new job. As Snap's informs him, he's now the house butler. And he responds with, I don't even know what that means whereupon Sylvester Stallone turns to him and goes, it means you buttle. And the whole movie is like that. The, the dialogue just, like I said, snaps off in some scenes at a really rapid pace. And there's several plot twists in the film. I mean, for, for a light comedy like this, I'm really surprised at all the twists and turns that uh, Landis and company managed to squeeze into the film. And it, it's not even that, I think, that long of a film. I'm not even sure if it's two hours in length, but it is a film that you kind of have to pay attention to in order to, to catch everything that's going on, especially once the suitcases come into play. I, I just have an image of Burry and Mulholland like conspiracy theorists just locked in a room with this wall of pictures and, and uh, you know, papers pinned to it and just red lines going everywhere, trying to keep track of what characters and what room and what they know. And 
you know, especially when the, like I said, when the bags come into play and keeping track of who has which bag and, and, and I know I'm trying, I'm sitting here, you're probably thinking it sounds really complicated and I guess on some level it is, but it never feels that way. And to me, that's a real plus, you know, you don't need to keep notes in order to keep track of who everybody is and you know why they're there and what's going on. Uh, but having said that, it's not a movie I would just walk away from and leave running while I went to the bathroom or grabbed a snack because it is is one that's a little better when you do pay attention to what's going on and and try to keep track of especially the bags for yourself. And you know, considering how thin the plot itself actually is, the fact they're able to pull off all these gags and balance all these characters in it and add all these plot twists, you know, one on top of the other, on top of the other, and you know, hold your interest, it's amazing. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the cast. This is, talent-wise, one of the biggest casts, especially in terms of character actors, that I think we've ever covered on the podcast. And every one of them gets their chance to shine in the movie. Everyone has their own little moments or scenes and for the time, Stallone's probably the biggest star in it. Now, once I start going through the cast, which I'm getting ready to do, you're probably going to argue with me because there are a couple of genuine acting legends in the cast. But at the same time, for the time period, if we're just talking star power and not you know, legends, uh, Stallone was the biggest one in it, the, the name draw. And like I said, the cast they surrounded him with is just amazing. It's definitely a cast that uh, you would either step up and and start working on their level, or you would fail miserably. For some reason, a lot of people think Stallone didn't do that. But honestly, I really think this is one of his best performances. But then again, he is sort of playing the straight man to so many of the other characters in the film. Stallone is on record saying that he kind of wishes he had played uh, Snaps as more like the original character, more bitter and cynical. But honestly, I think he made the right choice in doing what he did because all through the film, Snaps is bound and determined to do, you know, to keep his promise to his dad. We're going straight. I'm going to be an honest businessman. I'm going to be a banker. And he retains this optimism through all of it. That, you know, all these obstacles keep getting thrown at him. And he's like, nope, I can fix this. We're moving forward. We're no longer criminals. You know, his henchmen you know, keep saying it's not going to work. Uh, when his daughter reveals she's pregnant, his wife's like, you know, there's no way we're going to find a husband yeah, you know, just you know, obstacle after obstacle, and through it all, he just remains cheerful. And nope, this is going to work. I got a promise to keep. We're going to do this, and just keeping that. And I think it was the right direction to go with the character. And and to me, it was nice to see Stallone play that because he's an action star. You know, he's Rambo. He's Rocky. He's done these roles where he has to be the serious, you know, the manly man type of character and to see him in this even though he is a gangster and there's a couple of scenes where he does threaten people but you know to see this side of him this sort of light-hearted and uh, fun side of him you know this very optimistic character uh, I really liked it I think he pulled it off well and I, as I said I think it's the right choice 
because so many other people in the cast, their characters, are cynical that he's going to be able to pull this off. But, like I said, uh, you either know Stallone as Rocky, or Judge Dredd, or Rambo. More recently, of course, the Expendables movies, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, and uh, Death Race 2000. His elocution coach, as I've already said, is Tim Curry, who, of course, you remember from Rocky Horror Picture Show, Legend, Clue, It, the original one from the 80s, was it late 80s, early 90s, Muppet Treasure Island, Charlie's Angels, and, of course, the voice of the dad, I, can't, I didn't write the character name down, uh, on the Wild Thornberries, the Nickelodeon cartoon from the late 90s. Rogue daughter Lisa, who is pregnant and who Stallone is, who, well, who Snaps is trying to marry off so that she can be a decent woman, is played by Marissa Tomei. It's one of her earliest feature film roles. Of course, most recently, she's gotten everyone's attention by playing Aunt May in the Tom Holland series of Spider-Man movies in the MCU. Which brings her full circle, because one of her earliest film appearances was an unnamed role as Jim Girl, well, uncredited role as Jim Girl, in the original Toxic Avenger back in the 80s. Before this, uh, Oscar, her other feature film uh, role included a small part in the film The Flamingo Kid, as well as a short stint on the Cosby Show spinoff, the television show A Different World, starring Lisa Bonet. Of course, she achieved cinematic immortality a couple of years after this, appearing alongside Joe Pesci and My Cousin Vinny. She also appeared in Four Rooms and The Wrestler, alongside Mickey Rourke. Uh, And I gotta say, she steals about every scene that she's in, whether she's playing opposite Sylvester Stallone and being the bratty, spoiled daughter who wants her independence, or uh, whether she's sitting across from Tim Curry and trying to seduce Dr. Poole because as a doctor, of course, he's a suitable marriage candidate. And because of his work, he's also someone who travels a lot, which is you know, one of her goals to go out and see the world. And the rest of the cast is made up almost entirely of people that, you know, it's like, oh, it's that person from that, this movie, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, Harry Shearer has a small role in it. And of course, Harry made you know burst onto the scene well i'm gonna say burst on the scene he'd been working before but uh, he's one of the members of spinal tap of course this is spinal tap which came out in the 80s he also does voices for the simpsons and he's appeared in several christopher guest films including mighty wind uh, a mighty wind and of course christopher guest is another member of Sp- uh, spinal tap funny enough one of their songs is called break like the wind one of their albums too if i remember right Then he does a movie called A Mighty Wind. And I've got to quit drinking before I do these because my mind is wandering. But we'll break down some of the rest of the cast. Uh, Anthony, who is Snap's accountant and who manages to steal $50,000 from him, is played by Vincent Spano, who's done a lot of television over the years. Uh, Some of the films he's done include Over the Edge and Rumblefish, uh, the Piazzadora version of And God Created a Woman, uh, and mo- most recently, the film Half Brothers. But like I said, a ton of TV work, including stuff like Blue, Bo- Blue Bloods and Castle. Aldo, the butler, is played by Peter Rygart, who had worked with Landis before on the film Animal House. He's also been in the movies Crossing Delancey, 
and passed away and traffic. He's also done a lot of TV, including appearances on Seinfeld, Leverage, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Connie is played by Chaz Palminteri, who we talked about uh, briefly for the Last Dragon episode. Also in the films, The Innocent, uh, also in the film, Innocent Blood, uh, and A Bronx Tale, and The Usual Suspects. Also done some TV work and stuff like Rizzoli and Isles, Modern Family, and uh, Godfather of Harlem. Lieutenant Toomey, who is the cop trying to prove that Snaps isn't going straight, is played by Kurtwood Smith, who you may recognize from either RoboCop or as Red Foreman from That 70s Show. Three really cool genre actors that uh, wound up in the film include Snaps' wife, Sophia, who's played by Ornella Muti, who you may remember as Princess Aura from Flash Gordon, his Aunt Rosa, who's played by Yvonne DiCarlo, who was, of course, Lily Munster back in the 60s television show, and a blink-and-you-miss-it manicurist for a rival mobster who's played by Arlene Sorkin. And you may recognize her when she opens her mouth as she's the original voice for Harley Quinn. Martin Ferrero also has a small role. Him and Harry Shearer uh, are play brothers who are tailors for uh, snaps. Uh, you may recognize Martin from Jurassic Park. He's the lawyer who's eaten while he tries to hide in the toilet. William Atherton plays one of the bankers that Snaps is meeting with in order to buy into their bank. And you may recognize him, of course, from Ghostbusters. One of the other bankers is Mark Metcalf, who played the master on the Buffy television show and was also in Animal House as Niedermeyer, the uh, JROTC guy who... At the end of the film, you find out, went to Vietnam and was shot by his own troops. Uh, he also, if you're a kid of the 80s, he was the angry dad in the Twisted Sister videos for We're Not Gonna Take It and I Wanna Rock. And they managed to rope in a couple of acting legends for what turned out to be really small parts. Uh, Snap's dad, Eduardo, is played by Kirk Douglas, who's been in such films as Spartacus, Saturn 3 with Farrah Fawcett, and the Disney live-action 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And, and he's done a ton of other things, I know, but those are the three that always come to mind when I hear the name Kirk Douglas. Uh, and in the opening scene, as he's on his deathbed, and he's angry at Snaps for you know being a gangster, and he slaps him. He slaps, according to Sylvester Stallone, he slapped Stallone for real. Stallone told him to go ahead and do it uh, because he didn't think the the uh, swing and a miss slaps looked realistic or looked like he was connecting. And uh, much like when he told Dolph Lundgren, hey, let's box for real for Rocky Three, getting slapped by Kirk Douglas was not a wise decision, according to Stallone. And uh, last, we have Father Clemente, who's played by Don Amici. He had worked with uh, Landis before on Trading Places and also appeared in Coming to America and Cocoon. And again, this man has a, a list of films that goes all the way back to like 1936. He has appeared in a ton of movies. Uh, and he's one of those actors that, that I just absolutely love his voice. He's got one of those sort of soft voices, but it does command your attention. You know, he, he's got that kind of presence. So he doesn't have to yell in order for you to pay attention to what he's saying and take him seriously. And, and they're not all. They're just all the ones I wanted to point out. There's a ton of other people in the movie that, uh, like I said, are the that's that guy from 
this thing or, or that's this woman from that thing. If you're like me and you've seen a lot of TV and movies from the 80s, 70s and 80s, maybe even the early 90s, you'll recognize so many of these people from other projects. And it's a great cast. I've, I've got to say that. The material's good. Like I'll, I'll say it again. It sort of reminds me in terms of pacing and the jokes and what the cast does with the jokes of Clue. It's like a 90s Clue. Uh, I don't think it's as good as Clue, but if you liked Clue and that kind of humor and that sort of wit, then yeah, Oscar is, is a film for you. Which naturally brings us to the most important question of all. Was it entertaining? Yeah, I, I, like I said, I think it's a really good script. It's not a lot of plot, but it's not doesn't need a lot of plot. It's not a film that's going to benefit from a lot of plot. It's just enough of a skeleton that they're able to let the actors run with the material and you know showcase what they can do and and just play off of each other. And it's just a fun film. Like there's a lot of twists to it, but they don't overwhelm you with anything. And it is kind of fun trying to keep track of certain things and, and who knows what and what's going on. And even in like the last five minutes of the movie, they're still throwing new things at you. And and the cast is great. I, I know some people, like I said, didn't like Stallone in a comedy. They didn't think he did well with it. But I did. I liked him in the film. I think he does really good with the character. I think he made the right choice in making snaps a more positive and optimistic character versus you know the the cynical, bitter character that he's supposed to be in the original film and the play. And honestly, looking at the rest of the actors in the film, to say Stallone is the weakest. Yeah, you know, comedian, comedic actor in the film, or the weakest actor in the film, uh, is kind of like saying that Ringo was the worst member of the Beatles. It's like, look at what you're comparing him to. And in my opinion, I think Stallone holds his own uh, against everybody else in the film. The film is available to rent from several uh, streaming services. At the time of the recording, I myself watched it on Hoopla. If you don't know what Hoopla is, it's a free service that a lot of libraries offer. It's like an uh, extra f- streaming service. You can get uh, audiobooks, you can get uh, ebooks, you get music, you can get movies. You know, just about uh, you can get a lot of things from it, and all it takes is a library card. It's not the only service out there. It's the service used in my area, and I actually had to go and uh, get my library card renewed so that I could sign back into my account. And hey, library cards are free. The only downside of Hoopla, and and they've actually upped it. When I first started using the service, they only allowed you five downloads a month. Which, if you're doing audio books, it, it's you know not that bad because you know audio books are hours and hours. If you're wanting to watch movies, like I'd use it for, yeah, that can can sort of uh, be a limit. But they recently raised the limit, and now you can download and check out up to eight items a month. So, you know, if, if you want that, if you want to have that option of just an extra streaming service for I can't find anything, or, or maybe you want to listen to audiobooks, you know, it might be worth checking out. See if Hoopla's in your area, or if uh, your local library offers 
a different service. I think there's a couple of other ones floating around that are linked to libraries. Hoopla does not sponsor any part of this podcast. I just really like them. Uh, so yeah, Oscar, if you like screwball comedies, uh, if you like uh, Clue, it's definitely a, a movie worth checking out. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Once again, I'll remind you, May 17th, uh, go over to Esoterica Cinema and get to hear me and Ryan and Jason talking about the Alan Moore scripted The Show, which is a really bizarre film. Uh, I know, shocker, right? I mean, can you believe Alan Moore would write anything weird? So that's coming up on the 17th of this month, and we'll be back next week. Why do I keep saying we'll be back? It's just me. It's just me. I do everything for this podcast. I don't have a writing partner or anything. Even the rabbit's given up on me. He moved his cage into the living room. Now i got to share my office with the cat and the litter box, but at the end of the day, it's just me. So I guess we need to do, decide what the next movie is going to be. We again. I think I need to decide what the next movie is going to be. Um... And i, I got to be honest, I'm sort of bouncing back and forth in my head. I got Mubi, uh, another streaming service. I got a free three-month trial. There's a bunch of movies on that I'm actually trying and liking. They're all foreign films, and I'm not really sure if you guys would be interested in me doing so many foreign films. Yeah, but they are the kind of stories that I do like and I think I could talk about. But then again, I also have a stack of DVDs I bought from Dollar Tree that I probably need to start working through. But actually, you know what? I'm I'm going to I'm going to pick one of the DVDs. I'm going to go with because I was really surprised to find this one, Stockholm from 2018 with a uh, Numi Rapace, a uh, you know, girl the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. I mean, the girl with the dragon tattoo movies and uh, Prometheus, the uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes films. And uh, Ethan Hawke, whose entire filmography just popped clean right out of my head as soon as I said his name. I've got to quit drinking before I start recording these things. But it's 1970s Sweden, and Ethan Hawke robs a bank, and in the hostage standoff, Numi Rapace's teller starts to develop feelings for him and starts to try to help him out in what uh, is basically the origin of the term Stockholm Syndrome. And and the reason that I'm kind of excited to watch this film and to talk to you guys about it is because before I even did the podcast, before I even had an idea for doing this podcast, I had already started making my list because I love watching the you know uh, movie trailer compilations on YouTube and I would keep seeing movies and then I'd forget about them until like months or sometimes years later, I would come across them uh, on a streaming service or somebody would mention something and it would like snap back into my head. Oh yeah, I wanted to see that. And so that's when I started making my list and putting it on my phone every time I saw a movie or, or uh, thought about a movie. And Stockholm was actually one of the first films that I put on there because I knew it wasn't going to come around to any of the theaters in my area, and I just want to make sure, you know, look through my list, see it, see if I can, you know, find it. And it's really helped out, and, and so, I don't know, the, whether the movie's good or bad, 
it does kind of hold a special spot in the history of the podcast, the prehistory of the podcast. So, you know what, that's going to wrap it up. Uh, as always, there's a lot of things you can choose to be in life. Kind is one of the better ones, especially to yourself. If uh, you liked what you heard, and wherever you're listening to me through allows you to leave reviews or star ratings, please do so. It helps other people find us. Uh, if you like what you heard, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell an enemy. But uh, until next time, I have been Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams, and I hope to see you again next week. But until then, go out and find something interesting to watch and enjoy. Good night.